grabbing your microphone. I'll just see how you sound there. All right. You mean you didn't bring a mic stand for me? Oh, I thought you were strong enough to handle it. I can't can't believe that. I'm sitting here with the mic in the hand. Okay, got it. Curls. Yeah, it's a workout and an interview. (laughs) We're efficient like that. What do bodybuilding, gerrymandering, Hollywood, and being Republican have to do with acting on climate? We discuss on this episode in a sit-down interview with former California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. Hi, and welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation. I'm Julia Piper, contributing editor at Green Tech Media, and we have our Democrat and Republican co-hosts here as always. First up, Shane Skelton, our resident Republican, partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific, a former congressional candidate and former staffer to House Speaker Paul Ryan, and Brandon Hurlbut, our resident Democrat, partner at consulting firm Boundary Stone Partners, former White House staffer under President Obama, and former chief of staff to Energy Secretary Stephen Chu. In this episode, as I mentioned, we sit down with the governor to talk about passing durable climate policies. Speaking of climate policy, we first have to touch on what was a very busy week last week on Capitol Hill for climate change. There were four climate hearings last week, including one in the Senate side. And while the focus was largely on innovation and national security, One of the biggest headlines to come out of this was about undergraduate degrees. Here's former Secretary of State John Kerry with Republican Representative Thomas Massey of Kentucky. The exchange starts by referencing a newly proposed White House Climate Advisory Committee. Secretary Kerry, I want to read part of your statement back to you. Instead of convening a kangaroo court, the president might want to talk with the educated adults he wants trusted to fill his top national security positions. It sounds like you're questioning the credentials of the president's advisors currently, but I don't think we should question your credentials today. Isn't it true you have a science degree from Yale? What's that? Bachelor of Arts degree. Is it a political science degree? Yes, political science. So how do you get a Bachelor of Arts in a science well, it's liberal arts education and degree. It's a bachelor. Okay, so it's not really science. So I think it's somewhat appropriate that somebody with a pseudoscience degree is here pushing pseudoscience in front of our committee today. I want to ask you. Are you serious? I mean, this I, is really a serious me, happening here. You know what? It is, it is serious. You're calling the president's cabinet a kangaroo court. Is that serious? I'm not calling his cabinet a kangaroo court. I'm calling So obviously, this is a little ridiculous. Brandon, what do you make of this exchange? Because like it or not, this is one of the biggest news items to come out of this week of hearings on climate. I mean, what do you make of it? What a joke. I thought Senator Kerry's response was totally right on. Is this really happening here? I mean, this is supposed to be a great deliberative body. And, you know, the congressman from Kentucky was trying to score cheap political points by trying to point out that, like, John Kerry's not a scientist. You don't have to be a scientist to agree with scientists. And I'd like to see a more serious discussion happening on Capitol Hill on this. So I agree with a couple of things Brandon said, um, maybe not all of them. I do agree with him that you don't have to be a scientist to agree with scientists. I mean, I'm not a scientist. That doesn't mean I would eat poison, obviously. Um, I also think the question was terribly absurd. 
But what's also absurd, and I think kind of disappointing from from my view, is that Republicans didn't give a shit about John Kerry's opinion on climate when he mattered, when he was like Secretary of State, when he was a presidential candidate, when he was someone that could influence the political dialogue. Now Democrats have control of the House and they bring someone to testify. We've heard what he has to say. Nobody cares. I want my side of the aisle. I want our guys to get behind this. I want our men and women to care. I want our our representatives to engage in this discussion. And I'm not sure that bringing John Kerry to lecture them was a productive move at all by House Democrats. But you know, if they'd brought in a climate scientist, that the exchange probably would have been something similar. It wouldn't have necessarily been more productive. Uh, I I don't disagree with you at all that it wouldn't have been more productive, but it, it just creates fertile ground for an honest discussion, bringing uh, John Kerry, a former Democratic presidential candidate and Obama uh, cabinet member to lecture House Republicans is never going to be helpful. It seemed like he was trying to set a political trap for him. And we need to move beyond that type of approach in, in Congress and move towards having serious discussions about solutions to this very serious issue. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to bring up this exchange, apart from it having been a viral moment, is that Representative Massey actually tweeted out, I think, the same day or the next day about him installing solar panels at his house. It just goes to show that while the politics on climate can be so toxic and so superficial sometimes, a lot of the solutions both parties are not opposed to, clean energy being one of them. That is something that generally gets backing. Even the tax credits for wind and solar got bipartisan support. Mind you, you know, it did also include in that same bill language about lifting the oil export ban. But I just thought Tom Massey uh, tweeting out about his own solar panels was just so interesting. Here you have a Tea Party Republican saying, I'm all about energy independence when it comes to, to clean energy in my own backyard. But here I am going to, you know, tear apart the secretary. Well, like two thirds of climate change should be along the typical conservative lines. One, as you mentioned, is like solar. That gives the individual power over, you know, some larger entity. Two, states' rights. A lot of states are experimenting with cool uh, climate and clean energy policies. So conservatives should be lined up almost 100% there. The third piece is that conservatives typically don't like a heavy hand from the federal government, but in a problem that is by nature global, you have to have federal involvement. And that's where I hope we can get. I'm really glad to hear you say that because the libertarian approach to this issue can't work. It's a collective action problem. This is actually what government is designed to solve for. And if we go with Congressman Massey's way, we're doomed. So there were four climate hearings on Capitol Hill last week, as we discussed, but that actually wasn't all. The House also advanced a bill to keep the U.S. in the Paris Climate Agreement, and a group of Democratic senators introduced a carbon fee bill. The last thing I want to tee up for discussion before we turn to our conversation with Governor Schwarzenegger is the carbon pricing piece. While there are now multiple bills introduced with backing from both political parties, it just doesn't seem like carbon pricing is getting the public and political momentum it needs to actually pass any time in the near future. Brandon, I know you've been thinking about this. What are your thoughts? It's interesting. There was a New York Times magazine piece that came out this weekend um, that discussed this. And that piece is called The Problem with Putting a Price on the End of the World. The thrust of the of the piece was that uh, carbon pricing has been this solution that economists have favored. They say it's the most efficient way to solve this. But the political dynamics have changed uh, where you know, performance standards, some of the things that have been done in California under uh, Governor Schwarzenegger are like a preferred path because they focus on the outcomes and not the mechanisms to get there, which could be more, you know, politically feasible. 
Uh, so what does that mean? The outcomes and not the mechanisms. Well, when like a carbon tax or a cap and trade bill, the policy focuses on the sacrifice. Whereas on a performance standard, you're focusing on the goal. You want to get to, um, hundred percent, you know, clean energy, um, or carbon reductions in governor Schwarzenegger's case among other policies, but he really championed that reducing California's carbon emissions. Exactly. And so, you know, this is where the Green New Deal, I think, has gotten this momentum because it's more focused on the economic benefits to people, the jobs associated with it, um, than the mechanism on how to get there. And the piece points out that, you know, this is what we found in healthcare as well. When we focused on, you know, the ex- healthcare exchanges and such, you know, it wasn't as popular. We focused on, like, do sick people deserve to get health insurance? You know, that was more politically palpable for folks. Well, one interesting quote in that New York Times magazine piece that you mentioned is uh, one from Tom Steyer saying the whole question on climate is, what is your theory of political change? I thought that was so interesting. And we talk a lot about incremental versus bold action, things like that. Shane, when you hear that takeaway, uh, does it spark any thoughts? Yeah, it does. I mean, I was never a fan of carbon pricing. Honestly, I was never a fan of cap and trade. Um, I really wasn't a fan of climate action generally when I was working on Capitol Hill. What I think that a lot of Republicans, I know I have taken for granted for a long time, and, and Brandon has some really good thoughts on this that we've discussed offline, is we've been playing on a conservative playing field since the Reagan election in 1980. And I think we've become so comfortable with that field that when someone says, hey, we should price carbon or we should do something that could cause economic pain, we've known that we could say no immediately and win that fight. Interestingly, the architect of Reagan's economic policy is Art Laffer. And if you talk to anyone who knows Art Laffer, and I don't, what they will tell you is he is consistently beating the drum of a carbon tax as the most economically friendly way uh, to deal with this. So that is to say that it is possible that if Ronald Reagan were president right now, he might support a carbon tax. And then it makes me wonder, did we lose an opportunity to have an economically friendly path towards reducing carbon emissions? Because if we let the people who are designing the Green New Deal you know, frame this debate away from where I want to be, I don't think I like where it goes. And one of two things is going to happen. Either they're going to get their way and I'm going to hate it, or they're not going to get their way and we're not going to see any climate action at all. And I don't think either of those outcomes is positive for our country. I think the theory of change question is going to be something that we can talk a lot about this season, especially in the context of the presidential election, because I think it's not necessarily a Democrat or Republican question. Many of my Democratic friends would probably agree more with Shane on theory of change than maybe with me. Uh, we've been having a lot of these debates between some of my you know, more establishment uh, you know, friends. Uh, Something the governor said to us is that, why don't we just do what we're doing in California? It's working and it didn't hurt our economy. And in the piece like John Podesta, you know, kind of agrees with him. So uh, that's sort of an interesting, um, you know, political dynamic where people you know, might be able to come together. But the Green New Deal is offering, you know, a much more different approach. Yeah. And just really quick on, on our conversation with the governor, it was really good for me to hear that because I'm typically a conservative out here having this discussion by myself with people on the other side of the aisle. And it was really refreshing on the left for me coast. To, yeah, exactly. And he, he did a lot of this and he had these fights with his own party and with the opposition party. And it was just really sort of nice to get to listen to him and learn about his experience and feel like I'm not alone out there either. Cause I don't consider him any less conservative for what he did. I think of him as a conservative Republican who addressed climate change. Those two things are not inconsistent. Yeah. And we actually do hear Governor Schwarzenegger explain why he is a Republican to this day and very proudly so. Shane, one last thing I want to put to you is on the discussion of California. It is very much a Republican ideology and philosophy that states get to be 
you know, the hotbeds of innovation and get to have states' rights and implement the policies they want. And, you know, as a citizen, you can you can stay or leave. And yet we've seen under the Trump administration a lot of pushback on California specifically for its climate and energy policy. So how is this? What do you make of this inconsistency? I didn't make anything of it because I didn't think about it. And it really resonated. After I spent five hours just being really proud that I got to hang out with Arnold Schwarzenegger, I started to then digest the conversation that we had. And it did occur to me that there is literally nothing more conservative than the 10th Amendment. There's nothing more conservative than states' rights. And so if conservatives don't like what they're doing in California, that's that's fine. I don't like a lot of what we're doing in California. I'm free to leave. But I think what the governor made me, you know, reminded me of is that states should be taking chances. States should be trying things out. States should be doing whatever it is their population wants them to do. And the federal government has the benefit of watching. And if something works really well, you can adopt it at a federal level and you can show people the benefits because you have a pilot. If things don't go terribly well, then you can tell voters, look, I'm not going to do that because it didn't work and you have proof. So I'm glad you asked that question. And that was just good for me to be reminded as a conservative. Conservatism isn't a set of bills that have been introduced by people with R's next to their name. Conservatism is a set of principles and states' rights is very much one of them. Well, on the states' rights piece, watch for Governor Jay Inslee of Washington signing into law a new 100% clean electricity bill. That means Washington will join Hawaii, California, and New Mexico as the fourth state committed to clean electricity. So that's another example of states really taking action into their own hands. And we'll leave it there for now to turn to our interview with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Am I grabbing your microphone? I'll just see how you sound there. All right. You mean you didn't bring a mic stand for me? Oh, I thought you were strong enough to handle it. I can't can't believe that. I'm sitting here with the mic in the hand. Okay, got it. Yeah, it's a workout and an interview. We're efficient like that. So, Governor Schwarzenegger, thank you so much for sitting down with us tonight. Uh, We are at your Schwarzenegger Institute at USC, and we just saw you give an amazing talk to your students today. So, we wanted to, you know, pick your brain on the current state of political affairs. And actually, Shane is going to kick us off with a a hard-hitting question, I think. Yeah, we wanted to hit you with something hard because you just gave that lecture. And I was scrolling through your Twitter feed. As you can tell, my workouts aren't really paying off. And I saw that you mix schnapps with your protein powder, and that gets it right into the blood. So, is that what I'm doing wrong? Because I think I'm crushing it in the gym, but it's just, it's not showing no, up. Not showing. That, that, that's funny. But <laughs> More schnapps? It was a, a great kind of April Fool's Day, oh, uh, no. uh, you know, video. Uh, because, we thought uh, that was the secret. Oh, well, well, no. You know, here's the funny thing about it, that in the old days, Franco Colombo is a chiropractor, doctor in chiropractic, and he's really, really smart when it comes to nutrition and all this stuff. And I, we used to live together. And it was like way back, you know, 45 years ago, 50 years ago. And, uh, and so we always believed that alcohol goes fast into the blood because you feel right away a little bit drunk when you drink alcohol, right? And uh, so we said, wouldn't it be great if we put this in our protein drink? <laughs> and then it would deliver the protein quicker to the muscle. Little did we know that the alcohol would quickly go to the blood, but the protein does not does, does not get delivered. You know that alcohol is not a delivery system to the to the muscle for protein. You know? So anyway, it was it was really funny. So we thought on April first, I said uh, I said to my friends, I said, why don't we just do something, uh, some pranks, you know, some uh, you know, and so we came up with that idea. Let's just like go back to the old days, pouring schnapps into the protein. Well, it actually does spark a real question related to climate change. Because in my mind, the question is, how do you get climate to be as compelling 
uh, on social media in the public eye as health and wellness. You know, you're a great spokesperson, a marketer, a Hollywood star, a bodybuilder. How do you get climate to resonate? How do you capture the public imagination on this issue? Well, you can't. I think that I've for years uh, told environmentalists they have to get off this just talking about climate change or global warming and all this stuff. It does not work. I mean, after all these years, we still see when you do polls that the people, the 17% or 19%, sometimes it goes to 20% of people say, yeah, this is real, a real threat. I'm worried about it. But if you say to them, pollution, then immediately the numbers go over 50%. So it's very clear that you got to talk about what's the problem today rather than talking about what is the problem going to be 10 years from now, 20 years from now, or by the end of the century, right? I mean, it's like, it's like uh, I mean, I talk about it in my, in my environmental uh, speeches because it is a real threat, global climate change, but I would not use that argument to convince other people because most people don't know what you're talking about when you say global climate change and global warming and all this. I mean, there's, there's a lot of people live in, in, in kind of like, in the cold areas to say, well, I like the temperatures to go up a little bit. I'm freezing my butt off I'm every Canadian, day. I'm Canadian, so I know? feel that. So, so you feel that. Okay, so I think that the action is with pollution. And we learned it the hard way with, uh, you know, when we were campaigning against Proposition 23, uh, when the oil and the coal companies came from Texas out here and wanted to undo all of our environmental uh, you know, progress that we made and the laws that we have passed uh, through Proposition 23. And uh, we were kind of fighting that proposition but we were not successful and because we used you know the ice is melting and the clay the glaciers are melting the ice the, the polar bears the poor polar bears they would not be around in 20 years from now and all this kind of stuff and, you know that the seawaters are rising and the people are saying seawaters are rising so what i'm living in uh, omaha in, uh, in nebraska so what i care about the seawaters and so it was uh, it, it didn't ring uh, you know it, it didn't change the needle when we used an ad with a little child with an inhaler, and we say that it causes you know asthma for little children and people dying because of, of, of cancer and, and, and because of pollution, that immediately had an impact and it changed the numbers and we beat Proposition 23. So we learned the hard way. We were struggling all the way to the end, but then we learned that the way to communicate to people is of what's going on today. Today, people are dying because of pollution rather than in 20 years from now, if you continue this way, it's going to be the end of the world. You know, like you hear some of these politicians talk about, in 10 years, it's the end. It's irreversible. It's nonsense dialogue. You know, threats never work with people. Never. You got to tell them what's going on today. Today, it kills people. So let's get off fossil fuels. That's what it's about. You actually did a lot of reframing around bodybuilding, as some people in our audience may or may not know. Can you tell us a little bit about how you reframed the conversation on bodybuilding and any lessons you may have learned there that apply to climate change? Well, it was, it's, it's always interesting, you know, it doesn't matter in which business you go into, in which field you go into, communication is the art of everything, right? You got to, because that's how you reach the people. It's like in the movie business, if you, if you cannot explain your movie within one sentence, it's over. You know, so uh, and if you don't create the right poster 
you know, you don't, you cannot sell the movie the right way. So people really studied that. How do you create the best poster? How do you create the best 15-second spot for TV to sell a movie? And the same was in bodybuilding. I mean, for years and years and years, think about it, that Eugene Sander was the first strongman bodybuilder. Uh, back goes back to the 1890s when he became really one of the world's strongest men and then became a circus performer and all this. And ever since then, people were working out with weights and that Mr. Universe contest, Mr. America and all this. But it had a terrible image, a terrible image. So I said, when I came over to America, you know, a few years later, uh, we hired a publicist and we started looking at what is wrong with it. It was just such a terrible image that bodybuilding had that we started calling it weight resistance training, progressive weight resistance training. And uh, all of a sudden people started listening. Because beforehand, the image of bodybuilding was like you were stupid, you were a narcissist, you were, you know, the, the bodybuilding makes you stiff, uh, that you die early, you get a heart attack, you turn gay, all of these kind of images that it had. And uh, so what we did was we just turned it around slowly by using weight resistance training. And it took off. And then, of course, in the 70s, the, the whole bodybuilding movement took off. And then now, look at it. Uh, you know, four and a half decades later, we now have a gymnasium literally in every hotel, in every military base, every fire station, every police station, every university, every high school. Every athlete is using weight resistance training, which is bodybuilding. is building the body with weight resistance training. So it's like changing the message. Is the you have to find the right message and then you can go and do it. And our crusade was successful, and I'm absolutely convinced that with the right message, if the politicians and if environmentalists are talking and, and using the the right message, I think we can be successful with this movement. So here at the Schwarzenegger Institute, switching gears a little bit, and you personally, when you're when you're out talking about the problems with politics, address gerrymandering quite a bit or redistricting or whatever people want to call it. My thought process has been, and I, and I, I assume part of yours too, but I'm curious how, how closely these two align, that climate change and bigger problems like that are very well aligned with redistricting reform because you can only win if you're the most extreme representation of your party in a primary. And by the time you get to a general, the lines are drawn in such a way that the Republican's going to win or the Democrat's going to win, so you just have to find the craziest person you can. These people get to Congress, and I think you articulated quite well in the lecture uh, what they do when they get there, which is is very little. And I think part of that's because there's a lot of grandstanding, but part of it's that there's nowhere near the middle. There's no room for compromise. So do you, in your work, consider what you're looking at with redistricting reform to bleed into a lot of your other efforts, climate change in this case being one of them? Well, I think that um, climate change is one of the issues that need to be addressed, especially as the United States being the number one country in the world and the rest of the world looks at America. If America says, yes, you know, that we got to get rid of pollution, we got to get rid of fossil fuels, we got to go and change our engines in the cars and the technology in order to, the rest of the world will follow very quickly. America never waited for anyone. You know, when you think back in the late 60s, we didn't wait for the Russians to land on the moon. We went to the moon first. And we always outdid everyone. We led the way. And I think that it's the same with this one, with environmental issues. And the way we get there is, and this is the case in all policy issues, let's not forget that America needs serious immigration reform. 
For decades, they've talked about it and they couldn't get it done. We need this serious infrastructure rebuilding. Our crumbling infrastructure needs to rebuild. For decades, they talked about it. They can't get it done. I mean, there's so many issues like that. We have a debt. For years now, they've been talking about, you know, we got to go and reduce the debt. We got to reduce the deficit. And it's going up. And the reason is, is because if the Democrats talk to the Republicans and they go back to their home base, they get voted out in the next election. And that is the sad story. You cannot go and compromise and you cannot talk to the other side. So imagine, how do you get things done in Washington when you can't talk to the other side? No one in Washington right now can really compromise except on some Mickey Mouse little issues, right? But the big issues they can't compromise because they're afraid that if they do compromise, they go back home and they lose their job. And so this is why redistricting reform and getting rid of the fixed uh, political system of gerrymandering, uh, I mean, that has to change. And it's a 200-year-old scam that I am just, I mean, really shocked about the fact that no one really fought it and no one really stood up to both of the parties and says, stop it, enough is enough. We got to start representing the people and not just the party. Governor, given your views on climate and immigration and health care, uh, it seems like the party has changed a lot. You know, some, some people are leaving the party, like Steve Schmidt, who worked with you, George Will. Why are you still a Republican? And if so, which Republicans should we be looking to to work across the aisle with? Who do you look to right now? Who should we be thinking about? Well, right now, things have changed. And I think because, uh, as I was talking about the redistricting, the technology now has gotten so sophisticated that it has become so extreme the way they draw the district lines because the politicians are literally picking the voters rather than the voters picking the politicians. So that really has kind of made everything much worse in the political arena. And, and, and people have changed, and politics has changed a lot. Democrats have changed, Republicans have changed. And as you know, in the Democratic Party right now, there is kind of some mass confusion between the left, the center, and the right of within the left party. And there's fights and everything, so, which is going to be a problem for them because I think that's going to cost them the presidential election for 2020, the kind of infighting that's going on within the Democratic Party. The Republicans are pretty much in line now. They all agreed, look, we maybe don't like the Trump, but we got to go and stick with him right now because, you know, he's popular and he moves the needle forward and all that stuff. So uh, I myself don't consider myself the Republican, what the Republican Party represents today. I, I am the Reagan Republican. I am uh, the Teddy Roosevelt Republican. Uh, I'm the George Bush of the first uh, Republican. I'm uh, the Republican that works on environmental issues, just like Ronald Reagan that created the Air Resources Board in California, you know, and uh, did not listen to the Republicans. But he said, that's what we're going to do because I hate to see the pollution that is out there. We got to do something about it. And it was the smartest move that he could make. And then Nixon, uh, remember, created the EPA. And uh, so here was another Republican that did that. And then I remember the Bush, uh, you know, when he did the, the acid rain, uh, the cap and trade uh, when he was president. So there was great action. And also remember the Republican Party, when you think back in history, the Lincoln days and all this, who fought for the minorities, who fought for blacks? 
in America, right? I mean, there was like unanimously all Republican votes to give them the voting right. It was unanimous amongst Republicans to go and give them a citizenship. It was unanimous about Republicans to make them equal to us and all of this kind of passing all these laws. And the Democrats were nowhere to be found. So this is how things change. But is this the kind of Republican that I am? And, uh, you know, I would never change party. I'm a Republican. I know what my philosophy is. I know what I stand for. And this is what I'm going to continue preaching. And that's why we need to reform the way the district lines are drawn so that we can go again and get true Republicans and true Democrats and do like the old days when Ronald Reagan sat there with Tip O'Neill when he was president and Tip O'Neill was the speaker and they got together at night at the White House and they worked things out. They were human beings and there was a, a wonderful relationship that benefited all of the Americans. So all those Republicans you named are gone. So other than my, my friend here, Shane, <laughs> what Republicans should give us hope today? Uh, there's many out there. There's many, I, I talk to them. There's many Republicans. I'm just saying, what is the number one issue with a politician? Get reelected, right? There's number one issue. Yeah. So, they, so that's why they are afraid to really come out and really be like the traditional Republican because that could cost them the seat because someone more to the right is going to can them and he's going to take the seat away. And so that is where the problem lies today. So they, we don't have villains in Washington. You know, we have very, very smart people. As a matter of fact, I would say that the people we have in Washington uh, are smarter probably than any capital in the, in the world. I'm absolutely convinced of that. But our political system, the way it's set up with the gerrymandering and all this stuff, it absolutely sucks and something has to be done about it. And that's why we took it all the way up to the Supreme Court. And that's why I was in Washington last week to listen in to the Supreme Court hearings. And uh, because there is, as you know, the Maryland case and there's the North Carolina case in Maryland. I mean, there's a stupid uh, thing where the Republicans got 35 percent of the vote and only 12 and a half percent of the seats. So that's a ripoff. I mean, I thought that every vote counts, right? It should. And in North Carolina, it's the opposite. The, the, the Democrats have, you know, the Democrats have forty-eight percent or so of the of the, of the popular vote, and only got like twenty-three percent of the seats. So there's another ripoff. So both parties do it, and we got to get rid of it. Well, we 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 learned the hard way in 2010. I mean, we drew those seats after not we, me personally, but Republicans drew the seats after you know wiping out the state houses in 2010. And I remember at the time, conventional wisdom was you could get like 40 percent of the vote and have a strong majority in Congress because the the districts were drawn so well. There was a lot of regret after that in the Capitol when the Tea Party. Uh, took control and when you were losing a sufficient amount of votes that you could never get to 218 and Pelosi was smart enough not to lend us uh, those additional votes. And I, I, I hope, because I, I think in real time people learned, I don't know if that institutional knowledge is gone uh, with people like Paul Ryan and others, but it is my hope uh, that your efforts are, are not falling on deaf ears because it, it got pretty tough after that. I have a question, I guess, more on the left side of it. We've seen a lot of energy come from young people in America today and actually across the globe, but certainly in America around the Green New Deal and progressive policies. They're taking to Capitol Hill. They're protesting against Nancy Pelosi and other Democrats, in fact, to move them left. It's unclear whether the Green New Deal or those policies will actually work at the end of the day. But what would you say to those young people in America? How would you harness that energy and where would you direct them? I would say to the young people that it's very important for you to study California's system 
and the way what we have done environmentally in California. Because the states always have been the laboratory for the federal government. And we have proven that uh, by having the strictest environmental laws, we also at the same time protected our economy. California is number one economically in the United States and is the fifth largest economy in the world. I mean, ahead of Italy and France and those countries. I mean, I mean imagine that. And it, it, it has proven that uh, we can protect both the environment and the economy. And therefore, when they want to talk about what should we do nationwide, copy California. We have shown already the road that it is successful, that it can be done. Don't invent new things. And it is, you know, it's always easy to promise like a, a, a new uh, deal and the Green New Deal and all of those kind of things. When you run for president, we have seen the kind of pe promises that politicians make. Uh, but they cannot even, as I said in my, uh, the, the students in there, they cannot even get the, the littlest thing done under this environment. I mean, to ban straw, uh, uh, plastic straws uh, from the bars and from, from uh, restaurants. Uh, they cannot get that done. So how are they going to go and make a, a Green New Deal? Congress, yeah. It is, it's, it's absurd. I think the bottom line is, is if you're smart, you will study California and do exactly what California has done. And we immediately could start closing, you know, 75% of the coal-fired power plants in the United States and really reduce pollution by far. I mean, they, we could have nationwide the goal of reducing greenhouse gases by 25%, just like we have done in California. So do you think that is the entry point? Set a, a carbon reduction target nationwide. Do you think that could be the thing that could get bipartisan traction? When I, under the circumstances, like I said, it's very hard to get a bipartisan traction on anything because otherwise we would solve the problems, the crisis that is going on on the border and, and all of this stuff, the crisis that we see in the infrastructure, crumbling infrastructure, but they won't do it. It's not because they can't. It's just because they're afraid when they go back home that by working with the other party, they're going to go and they get kicked out of the office. I want to touch on your transportation initiative. That's a more locally oriented initiative. You've launched it with Senator Kevin DeLeon in California. Tell me a little bit about that and, and why did you launch it? Well, I mean, look, if we, for instance, in California, it was very important to us to, to study transportation and to study the, where the pollution comes from and all this. And we wanted to move people and goods as quickly as possible because it's economic power, but also it's environmentally sound. So instead of getting stuck on the freeway, you know, we wanted to build extra lanes in the freeway and create the infrastructure in California. So it's it's a, to to create also mass transit, to uh, uh, and, and, and buses and everything like this. We just have to really rethink the whole thing because remember that the car companies and the tire companies and the oil companies got together and they really sold the idea that you need to have your own car. There was decades like that. Then they played the commercials and the advertising, you know, have your car. California is all about having your own car. They drove around with convertibles, the wind blowing through the air and all this kind of And they made it very romantic. And the people got off mass transit. But we need mass transit. We need what the Europeans are doing. So we don't have to redesign the wheels. So this is why Kevin DeLeon and a few of the Republicans, a few of the Democrats, we got together and said, let's rethink the way we travel in California. Let's go and create more mass transit. Let's go and create cleaner cars. Let's go and give incentives for cleaner cars. Let's go and build more freeways, more on-ramps and off-ramps and, uh, and uh, bridges and all this stuff. So, you know, it was one of the great things that we accomplished here in California, working together, both of the parties. 
And so this current initiative you have is going to continue that work at the local level. Is that right? Uh, working with governments to put these policies in place? Well, the most successful, as we all probably can agree here, is, is that if it's a public-private partnership, that's really the best way to move forward, especially with transportation, because you need outside investment. I don't think that the state should really pay for everything. I think there's ways of doing where the private sector comes in. We figured it out here. Other states have figured it out. I think the federal government hasn't figured it out yet, because on the federal level, we got to have change and we got to really go and step it up when it comes to infrastructure. So we just only have five minutes left, but I want to quickly get a bit of your origin story of why you started caring about energy and environmental issues. Um, Obviously, this was a main piece of your political legacy. You actually put California on a track to becoming a world leader on this issue. But why did you care and why are you still sticking with it? Well, you know, we fall into those things. If you would have asked me 50 years ago, would I ever be going out there and campaigning for the environment? I would have said no. Uh, But... When I ran for governor, and I was sitting there as governor after I won, and I learned from the scientists and from really smart people uh, of what's happening with the environment, I felt that now I'm in a position to have power to do something about it. And, uh, of course, I knew Republicans were not that excited over it. Um, and uh, so I worked more with the Democrats on this particular issue, and on other issues I worked with Republicans more. Uh, but in this particular issue, you know, uh, we started negotiating and talking about it and what can we do. So we started with the Green Building Initiative, and we started with the Renewable Energy to get more renewable energy and to make a commitment to reduce greenhouse gases and on and on and on. We did all kinds of things, and I just saw the effect it has, how you can really create change and how proud I was of the California, of the legislators, and of the people, because people voted for a lot of those issues. People helped us to protect those environmental laws. Uh, when when they when the oil companies and the coal companies came up with Proposition 23, and where they wanted to take it out, the California people went with us. So California people were great partners. So I got very passionate. And you know, there's another th- side of it, uh, besides that we need change, uh, and we need to protect our future. And we need to make it clean. But it's also when you are for that many decades involved in creating a healthy and strong body. Well, inevitably, you then also want to have your globe and your world to be clean and to be you know, uh, uh, healthy also. So I think it goes hand in hand. And I have led a crusade in bodybuilding and it was successful, so I feel like, okay, this is also one of those kind of uphill battles. I should get involved, and I'm going to go all out with it. Even after I'm finished as governor, I'm going to create the USC Schwarzenegger Institute, and we're going to continue with those issues that I felt very passionate about. And this is one subject I'm very passionate about. So, Governor, we do, in every uh, show, we have a segment called uh, Say Something Nice, uh, you know, or Don't Say It At All. So we each say and I have to say something nice about the opposite party every episode. Uh, So I want to use my time on Say Something Nice today to say something nice about you uh, as a Republican. Uh, I just want to thank you for supporting us and creating this partnership with us. It means so much. Um, I wish our listeners could have heard your, your talk downstairs in front of the students. You said things like, you need to think big. You talked about the adversity that you have overcome many times in your life. You were told you would never be a movie star, yet you were the highest paying actor in Hollywood. And so what we're doing here with our bipartisan conversation is risky. People say that that's not possible. People on on my side say to me all the time, the Republicans have gone off the deep end. 
why even you know try to do this? So we're really proud to be aligned with you. And I just want to thank you for your leadership on this issue and, and thank you for partnering with us. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. And, uh, you know, I cannot do it by myself, even though I'm known for being a strong lifter. But I think this is too much of a way to lift by yourself. I need uh, everyone to come in and be participating and lifting this heavy weight. And I think we can do it. I'm absolutely convinced that we can do it because I can see it. And remember the old rule, see it, believe it, achieve it. And I, I can see it that we will be successful if we all work together and we've, if we really communicate that well and make everyone out there, every citizen, as part of our crusader, crusader. Let's break out the snaps. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. And now you, you kind of ruined my week because I was really excited to get out of my new regimen with the schnapps. But, uh, <laughs> guess I'll have to wait on that. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Governor. Thank you. And that, folks, is our show. We've got new episodes of Political Climate coming at you weekly and some really great guests lined up. So be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Also, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at poly underscore climate. Send us your thoughts, send us your feedback, and let us know what else you'd like us to cover. We want this to be a conversation. Thanks so much for listening, and until soon.